We read the word of God from Hosea chapter 13. When Ephraim spake trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended in Baal, he died. And now they sin more and more, and have made them molten images of their silver, and idols according to their own understanding, all of it the work of the craftsmen. They say of them, let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore they shall be as the morning cloud, and as the early dew that passeth away, as the chaff that is driven with the whirlwind out of the floor, and as the smoke out of the chimney. I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me. For there is no Savior beside me. I did know thee in the wilderness, in the land of great drought, according to their pasture. <coughs> so were they filled. They were filled, and their heart was exalted. Therefore have they forgotten me. Therefore I will be unto them as a lion. As a leopard by the way will I observe them. I will meet them as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps, and I will rend the call of their heart, and there will I devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. I will be thy king, where is any other that may save thee in all thy cities? And thy judges, of whom thou saidst, give me a king and princes. I gave thee a king in mine anger, and took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up, his sin is hid. Sorrows of a travailing woman shall come upon him. He is an unwise son, that he should not stay long in the place of the breaking forth of children. I will, re I will ransom them from the power of the grave. <coughs> I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plague. So grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentant shall be hid from mine eyes. Though he be fruitful among his brethren, an east wind shall come. The wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness, and his spring shall become dry, and his fountain shall be dried up. He shall spoil the treasure of all pleasant vessels. Samaria shall become desolate, for she hath <coughs> rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their infants shall be dashed in pieces, and their women with child shall be ripped up. Thus far the reading of the Holy and divine scripture, we consider as our text, verse 14. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. <coughs> Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the translation of our text in the King James Version 
although it captures an important thought of the text, cannot be maintained on the basis of the Hebrew words. The verse should read, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, where is thy plagues? O grave, where is thy thy sting? Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. And a sermon on this text really can't be preached without reference to the apostles' own interpretation of the text in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55 and 56. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. You must understand there that the apostle too does not translate our text. The apostle interprets the text and as it were explains the meaning of the text. If he translated the text according to the Hebrew, that is if the Hebrew Bible was before the mind of the apostle, then he would say, Rather, O death, where is thy plague? O grave, where is thy sting? And if the Greek translation that was available to the apostle at that time was before his eyes, then he would translate, O death, where is thy penalty? O grave, where is your sting? And he says, neither. That's because the apostle is interpreting the text. He is interpreting the text as an announcement of the complete overthrow and destruction of death. So that the apostle says, O grave, where is thy victory? He speaks of a victory. A grand and glorious victory. A victory the likes of which man cannot conceive. It is a victory over death and the grave such that death and the grave are completely destroyed. That's really, too, behind the questions of the text. It is a taunt. It is the taunt of the victor over the defeated enemy upon whose neck he has his foot. That defeated enemy that had wrought so much destruction in his land, that had torn down so many cities and destroyed so many people, And the victor now has his sword at the heart of the the enemy and his foot is on the neck of the enemy. He says, no, where is your power? That's the idea of the text. There's a victory. There is a grand, complete, total victory over the greatest of all enemies, death. Death. And you must understand the announcement of that victory in light of the context. (coughs) In the previous context, God reveals that Israel is dead. When Israel used to speak, Israel exalted himself. Everybody listened. But when he transgressed in Baal, he died. 
Israel's misery isn't that Israel isn't trying its best to keep God's law. Israel's misery is not even that Israel didn't repent. That's not Israel's misery. Israel's misery is Israel is dead. There is no power in her. Even for obedience to the law, there is no power in her even for repentance. There is no power in her to turn. That's her misery. She's dead. And it is that deadness that God is describing in the preceding context uh, verses 9 and following to our text. Verse 9, he says, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. That's not what it says in the Hebrew. It says this, Israel, it destroys you that you made me your enemy, who is your helper. Israel's death came because Israel made the living God her own enemy. That's what sin does. Man, all men, must obey the law of God. And if they do not obey the law of God, they have made the living God their enemy. God has said to them, do, and they say no to the living God. And they destroy themselves. God destroys them, that's true. He kills them. But the blame is all their own. And further, uh, God shows <coughs> that that dead Israel is utterly helpless to save itself. That's the meaning of verses 10 and 11. You should understand 10 this way. Where is your king? And where are your judges that you wanted? As it were, where are all your mighty men? Where is your strength to save yourself from my judgment? The form of the judgment, of course, took was the coming of the Assyrian. You read about that judgment later on in the chapter. The Assyrian is going to come, and he's going to dash all your children in pieces. He's going to rip up all your pregnant women. And he's going to tear down Samaria. Where is your power to save yourself? Where are your kings, and where are your judges? They're gone because I gave them to you in my anger and I took them away in my wrath. Through those judges and the leadership of those judges and princes, they turned from God and made God their enemy. And they provoked the living God to wrath so that he came against them. They didn't have to deliver themselves, you understand, then, Merely, <coughs> merely from the Assyrians. That wasn't the issue. If a man's enemy is another man, he might arm himself. He might gather to him friends. He might build up his strength. He might gather a coalition. 
But Israel's enemy was the living God. And what is man going to do against God? That was Israel's situation. There was in her no power for her own deliverance. And God furthermore says there is no will or desire for it either. That's uh, verse 13. Or rather, uh, verse 13. Uh, the sorrows <coughs> of a travailing woman shall come upon him. He is an unwise son that he should not stay long in the place of the breaking forth of children. The thought there is Israel will not be born again. Israel will not repent. There's the picture there. Israel is a travailing woman. Great sorrows have come upon her. She is in the throes of her delivery. There is a baby in her that must come out. And that baby refuses to come out of the birth canal and to be born again. And that baby is going to be crushed there. And that mother and the baby will perish. There's no will in Israel to be delivered. None whatsoever. Israel is going to stubbornly maintain her sin to her own destruction and the destruction of her whole nation. And that's what God means too when he says the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up and his sin is hid. God took <coughs> all of Israel's sin and he, as it were, wrapped it up in a nice bundle and he saved it. You can't get rid of Israel's sin. God saved it. God's going to remember all of it. And that's Israel's predicament. Israel is dead, hopelessly dead, helplessly dead. God said, now, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. And that's God's promise to destroy death. And that's the theme of our verse, the destruction of death. Notice, first of all, about that destruction of death, that it's destruction of the last enemy. Notice that's by a wonder of God, and notice the certainty of the fulfillment. The text speaks of death. I understand that the text speaks also of the grave, but death and the grave are really one and the same reality, and the reality is death. The grave is related to, de to death as the seal upon death. <clears throat> so that the text is talking about death. I will redeem, I will ransom Israel, <coughs> Israel from the power of death. I will destroy death. That's the state of the sinner. That's the state of Israel. That's why there is no hope in that preaching that you must repent first. There is no hope in that. 
Because the reality of the state of the sinner, man by nature, the natural man as he's unregenerated, and the Christian as he is by nature, the reality of that sinner is that he is dead. If the gospel is, you have to do this first, and you have to do that first, and you have to walk in this way in order to receive this or this thing from God, then all men perish. There's no hope in it. The gospel, you understand, is the proclamation of a wonder. There's no wonder in man doing to get something. That's how the whole world works. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. You look out for me, I'll look out for you. You pay this and you get this. The whole world works that way. There's no wonder in that. The gospel declares an unbelievable wonder. And the unbelievable wonder at the heart of the gospel is the resurrection from the dead. I will overthrow death. I will destroy death. I will cause death to cease to exist and to have any power over you. And really what you're saying there is, I'm going to give you eternal life. And the wonder of that is, none of us deserve it. That's the wonder of grace. That's the gospel of full and free salvation toward those who are utterly deserving, undeserving of. They have sinned against God. They have stubbornly resisted His word. They don't deserve it. What they deserve is death. Death, of course, is a many-headed beast. It's one beast, but it's many heads. Uh, death, of course, is a spiritual death, so that what we mean by total depravity is the conception and the birth of the sinner dead in trespasses and sins. You always have to remember that about those who want to talk about man being able to do many good things. <coughs> how many good things can a, can a dead person do? But that is how man's spiritual condition is to be described. He is dead in trespasses and sins. And you come to me and you say, but I'm regenerated, I'm alive. And I'll grant you that, that's true. That's a wonder. That's a wonder of grace. That's part of your salvation. But your nature's dead. There is in it no good thing. You must always remember that you may never forget that. So that death is the, the spiritual condition of the sinner. And to that death, that reality of death also belongs physical death. Physical death which is the violent rending apart of the unity that is man. Man is a single entity. He is, he is a harmonious unity of body and soul. That's, that's how God made man in the beginning. And death violently tears apart man's body and soul so that the body goes down into the grave and the soul must enter into the judgment before God. And that that physical death, that physical death is then also the entrance 
into eternal death. The soul of the sinner must first go to hell and his body goes into the grave to be uh, eaten by worms and to turn into dust. And God in the resurrection of shame and of everlasting contempt will raise that body, will reunite that body and soul and cast that body and soul into everlasting perdition. To outer darkness, where the worm dieth not and the flame is not quenched. And that's what the sinner deserves. Death. Where did death come from? You have to understand, death is not a natural process. Death didn't always exist in the world. Man could have lived forever. On the earth, of course, but he could have lived forever. Man wasn't always dead in trespasses and sins. Man uh, loved God, his creator. Man wasn't liable to eternal punishment. He had everlasting life on the earth, an undiable life. Where did death come from? You have to understand, <coughs> death, death is a legal matter. Death is not a natural process. Death is a legal matter. Death is God's wages for sin. So that in death, you understand, you always have to do with the living God. By one man, sin entered the world, and death by sin, says the apostle in another place. That's what death says. Death is... God's word of punishment against the sinner who has offended against the most high majesty and glory of God. That is what death is. So that death is God's word against the sinner that destroys the sinner so that that word that God speaks die. That's, that's the word that God speaks over all creation over all men, over you and me too. Moses said it's over you and me too. God's word over the whole creation is returned to dust, ye sons of men. That's a killing word. So that that baby that comes out of the womb of the mother, that baby is already dying. That killing word of God is the word of God's justice against man that rewards all man for sin. Why is man conceived and born in sin? Because in Adam, God judged every single human being to be a sinner. And having judged every single human being to be a sinner, every human being is conceived and born dead in trespasses and sins. That's where death comes from. Death is the execution of God's sentence against the sinner. And two, why is, why is that, that death a legal matter? Because in death and with sin, you must always contend with the law of God. The apostle, when he interprets our text, 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle says that uh, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. And you can think of that this way, the sting of death is sin. If you have a scorpion, and that scorpion has a stinger, the sting of his stinger is his venom. The bite, as it were, of death is sin. That's why there is death, because there is sin. In Adam all men sinned. And death's bite is that sin. And he says the strength of sin is the law. And if we go back to our analogy of that scorpion with that stinger and that venom, if you say, well, what makes that venom so deadly? And you would say it's the neurotoxin in that venom. When that venom enters into you, that neurotoxin begins to inflame your body and it destroys that body. That's the reality of death. The, the sting of, of death is sin, and the strength of that sin is the law. The law, first of all, is uh, the strength of sin uh, because that law exposes how exceedingly sinful sin is. Man is always minimizing his sin. That's a great evil. Man minimizes that sin. That's why when you try to work with a sinner, he's always minimizing that sin. Ah, it's not that bad. Not that bad. The law says, <coughs> let me tell you how bad it is. Every sin that you commit against God and your neighbor is committed against the most high majesty of God. And that sin deserves temporal and eternal punishment. That's what the law does. The law exposes the exceeding sinfulness of sin. The law will not let man off the hook. The law will not let man say, but it's not that bad and I don't deserve death. That's why the strength of sin and the law. The strength of sin is the law, secondly, because that law inflames sin. That law is like a wind that blows upon a dying fire, and that law whips that dying fire up to an inferno. So little does the law not make men better, that the law makes men worse. Every time I come to you and I say to you, you, know, you may not commit adultery, the law says, uh, your flesh says, well, I want to commit adultery. And the law inflames that sin. Nothing wrong with the law. You can't blame the law for that. The problem is your flesh. The problem is that you're dead. The problem is that you are a sinner. And third, the law is the strength of sin because the law expresses God's verdict over the sinner. And that verdict of God over the sinner is cursed. Be everyone who continueth not in all things which are written in the law to do them. And so that law brings to the sinner the judgment of the living God. 
And God, having tried the sinner, according to the standard of his law, God then also kills that sinner for his violation of that law of God. And the sinner dies. So that the sinner in his whole earthly existence walks about in darkness, in the enmity of his mind and of his heart, fulfilling all his evil lusts, exhausting himself in the pursuit of his own pleasures, and destroying himself because he made the living God his enemy. And when that sinner dies, his body goes into the grave and his soul is judged by God. And in the final resurrection, the fate of the sinner is to be cast forever into everlasting death. God says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? God promises there the complete destruction of death. And that means he promises to take away all sin. You're dead because you're a sinner. He says, I'll take away all your sin. And to take away all your sin, God says, I'm going to take away all your guilt. And he promises then also to destroy sin and death and hell and the grave. So that they have no power over his people. So that they can never be brought into condemnation. And positively, the positive thought behind the text is, I'm going to give them the power of an everlasting life. There's not just the destruction of death in the text, but there's the promise of life in the text. When God destroys death, then God gives life to the church, to his Israel and to his people. Life with God, a life in his covenant. And an everlasting life. So that after our worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. That when all this weary night is finished, I will behold God face to face. That at the last trumpet, this mortal shall put on immortality and then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. There's a grand promise of a complete salvation for the people of God. Body and soul. Everlasting life. Freed from condemnation. There from the power of sin and death in hell. And how? Well, very basically, you have to say, by a wonder of grace. There's grace in the text. What you always have to remember about grace is grace is not a help. Grace isn't a help. Grace helped me do this, and grace helped me do that. Show me where that's in the Bible. Grace works wonders. 
Grace does the impossible. Grace isn't a crutch that a broken man can use to hobble along. That's not grace. Grace isn't a shot of B vitamins to give you a little extra more strength. Grace isn't a kind of upper whereby you can do things you wouldn't ordinarily do. That's not grace. Grace is the total and undeserved favor of God. And that's in the text, first of all, because those whom God redeems from death are dead. And they're dead because they're sinners. They're dead justly. And God set his favor on them. Freely. Without any merit or deserving on their part. He set his grace on them. And that grace in the text is the power of God to their salvation. It's the power that works a wonder in the text. A wonder that is utterly impossible for man. You want to know why a man can't save himself? It's not simply because man's a sinner. Let's say man was like Adam. He's very strong. Let's say man was able to obey God perfect. You know why man can't save himself? Because man can't work a wonder. Man can't work a miracle. Here, I'll give you some miracles to try. Make the sun stand still for two days. Bring bread from heaven. Raise a dead person. Call water from a rock. Those are all wonders. Those are all the works of grace. And at the central heart of the wonder of grace is this wonder, God became flesh. You understand that's in the text that God became flesh. When God says, I am going to redeem them and I'm going to ransom them. That demanded the incarnation. That demanded that God assume the human nature of man. And that God become man. You know why that was necessary? That God became man? Because to overcome death, you must yourself die. The promise of the text isn't that God somehow shuffles uh, death out of the way. The promise of the text isn't somehow that God, God gets, gets, gets around death. Death is God's own word. Death is God's own justice. And the only way to take away death is for oneself to die. God can't die. Man can die. And so the wonder, the central wonder of the text is God will become a man. And when God becomes a man, so that in one person, he is both truly God and truly man, then God says, I will, first of all, ransom them. That word ransom means to pay a set price. So that you purchase that thing or person from someone else for yourself. There is in that idea of redeem and ownership. 
And you can't say that when God redeemed that he paid the devil or something like that. God paid himself. God had the claim. The sinner offended against God. And God's right as the just and holy God was to send that sinner to hell. That was his right. And from that point of view, you can say death and hell owned that sinner. So that that sinner was in the power of that death and hell, and that death and hell could do anything it wanted to that sinner and could destroy that sinner forever. And God says, I'm going to pay the price. I'm going to transfer the ownership of that sinner from death and hell to myself. And you understand the price. The price always to redeem from death is death itself. So that God says, I'm going to come. I'm going to come and I'm going to take all their sins on myself. And I'm going to bear the punishment for those sins, which is death, even hellish agonies. And I will pay that price. I will satisfy my own justice. I will accomplish redemption such that death and hell have no claim over them. There's only one way that price can be paid too. Secondly, uh, and that is first of all that that one who pays that price must first of all love God. That's what the sinner whom God killed did not do. He did not love God. So that God says, I'm going to love myself. I'm going to love myself in their place and for them. And I'm going to suffer then, loving God, the punishment that God's justice demanded against that sin. Really, you could say this. God loved his justice so much that he would not give it up. But he took it and turned it on himself. I will redeem them. Ransom in the King James Version. That's how God uh, destroys death. He takes away the cause of death, which is sin. He takes, uh, let's put it in terms of the apostle, he takes the strength of sin away. When that was the law. Sin has no power to condemn God's people. Because the law is fulfilled. The law cannot say to them, you must do this and you must do that, and if you don't, I'm going to kill you. The law can't say that. The law has no power to condemn God's people. The law may not say to you, you must do this to live. God said, I redeem them from sin and from death and from the grave and from hell. They are free from the law of sin and death, from the power of sin and death, and they are free from the condemnation of that law. You have to tell the law that. You have to tell any minister that brings you that law that too. You're a minister of Satan. 
You're a minister of hell and of the grave. You're a minister of death. That's who you are. You're not a minister of Jesus Christ. Hell sent you. Hell sent you to bring me the law to tell me what I must do to have my salvation. Hell sent you to try to bring me back into death and the grave because you try to tell me that I have to do this first before God does that. You're a minister of hell, death, and the grave. And you're going to go there too if you keep preaching that. Because that isn't the gospel. The gospel is I redeemed you from death and the grave. And I redeemed you from death and the grave because I removed your sins from off your shoulders. And I redeemed you from death and the grave and removed your sins from off your shoulders because I satisfied God's justice and accomplished all righteousness. You understand that, don't you? (laughs) There's nothing that the law can tell you you must do to live that hasn't already been done. And it's been done by a person that's a whole lot better than you'll ever be. That's God himself in Jesus Christ. He did that. That's the other thing you can tell that minister who tells you you have to do this, that, and the other thing to have God's favor. You tell him you're an enemy of the righteousness and cross of Jesus Christ at which God redeemed me from hell and the grave. You've made God your enemy and his word against you as his enemy is you're going to die. You're going to die without hope and without any comfort. And you'll be judged by God. You minister of of hell and of death and the grave. God says too, I end the text, I uh, will redeem. And the ransom, we just treated ransom, now he says I will redeem them. And that is an altogether lovely word. Uh, the uh, substantive of that word is redeemer. And that word redeemer means to play the kinsman or to act the kinsman. So that that word points out that there is an existing relationship between the redeemer and the one who is redeemed. In the picture, the existing relationship is a family relationship. It is a covenant relationship in which that kinsman has the responsibility, the obligation, and the privilege to help his relative who has fallen into troubled times. Let's say that that relative... And we can even say that relative through his own stupidity spent himself into nothing. He's in debt. And in order to pay his debt, he had to sell himself into slavery. Then the kinsman had the responsibility and the obligation and the privilege to pay the price of his relative. And so when God says, I am going to redeem you in the King James... 
God is saying, I am going to fulfill my obligation as your relative. And that points out the fact that even before God comes to redeem, there is already a relationship. There is an existing relationship. And that existing relationship of the text is election. God established between those that he will redeem and himself a relationship when he chose them out of the human race in Christ Jesus and he appointed them to salvation. And you understand what that election means. God made himself responsible for you. God's word in the election is you're not responsible for your sins. I am responsible for your sins. And as the one who is responsible, the one who has the obligation and the privilege, I will redeem you. Redemption isn't something that's extracted out of God. Redemption proceeds from the eternal heart and love of God toward his people. And that love of God that burning, eternal, fervent love of God, it overcomes sin, hell, death, and the grave. That's why the apostle says, O grave, where is your victory? The love of God in Jesus Christ, the love of God took your and my sin, that love of God put that on Jesus Christ, and that love of God paid the price, so that love had the victory. Your sin cannot make God not love you. He loves you. He loves me from the depth of his being. With an eternal and undying fervency. And the proof is the cross and resurrection of Christ. Where he redeemed us. How fervent that love was is manifested in Christ that to redeem us, God spared not his own son. He loved his son. God loved his own son more than the whole world. He loved him. And because he loved you and he loved me, he sent that son to become the object of the destroying wrath of God. And you say to yourself, did God, did God hold something back? Did God maybe because uh, one of my sins uh, deserved a particularly a terrible judgment. Did God hold back? God says, no. Repentance will be hid from my eyes. I am not going to hold back. That's what the apostle means when he says in another place, I spared not my own son. I poured out upon him the full weight of my wrath. 
I beat him with many strokes. I pushed him down into the very depths of hell so that he said, why hast thou forsaken me? I fully paid for, I fully redeemed my people by paying the whole debt of sin and taking away all the guilt. And in that I destroyed death and the grave for them. And I brought to light life and immortality. He didn't hold back. He destroyed his son to destroy death. And he gives to us eternal life, the forgiveness of our sins, a new life in Christ, a hope that fades not away, reserved in heaven for us, freedom from condemnation, deliverance from the clutches of the devil. I will redeem them death and grave and he taunts them where is death's power where is death's sting where is the grave's victory they're gone They're gone through the wonder of grace that God worked in Jesus Christ, His Son, in love for His church. And what hope do we have then? We have this hope, that this mortal shall put on immortality. Then it will happen. Then it will be brought to pass. Death is swallowed up in victory. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy word. Apply that word to our hearts, O God, that we might live in the truth of our salvation, that it is full and free, that death has no power to hold us, but this mortal shall put on immortality. And teach us, therefore, what manner of men and women we ought to be who have this hope. We ask all this with the pardon of our sins for Jesus' sake. Amen.